This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. This series that we're in this morning that we begin today, we actually began this series back last fall in our connection group. So this is kind of like part two of what we did, finishing up the things that that we believe. We're piggybacking with this Sunday morning idea with our connection groups. Um, So the series is about all that we believe, the doctrines that we believe at Nags Head Church. So I want to thank you for being here. I think this is a really important study for us to do. If, and again, if you want to know about getting plugged into a connection group, please uh, stop by the Welcome Center after we finish. I saw this graphic on Facebook just the other day, just this past week. Uh, maybe you saw it too. Um, just in case no one told you today, you are good enough. Now, I think back in my own life, I was good enough to play high school baseball. And I did. I played baseball in high school. I was good enough to do that but I wasn't good enough to go beyond high school baseball. And you'd say, how do you know that, Rick? Because I tried. (laughs) You know the word cut? And uh, I tried to go beyond high school, and it just did not work. I wasn't that good uh, to do that. Um, We used to have an expression in construction when I was working in construction work, and and we'd build something, and and somebody would step, step back and look at it and say, well, it's good enough for government work, you know, we would say that, and Bob's laughing, he knows what I mean. Uh, it's good enough for government work, and, and meaning what that kind of meant, you know, well, government standards are not that high. I made a lot of grades in school, and probably you did too, that weren't good enough to give me an A. How many of you can relate to that? Did not quite get the A's. In work, we might not get in our jobs, we might not get the promotion, Frankly, because we're not good enough. So when somebody says, uh, just in case no one told you, you you are good enough, I can tell you there's been a whole lot of occasions in my life where I wasn't good enough. Didn't work out. Didn't happen. Because I was not, I could not meet that standard. The phrase good enough implies that there is a standard. Here's what good enough means. There is a standard somewhere of what makes something good or not good enough. Doesn't that what it means? There's a standard that somebody has set and uh, that, that gives you that, uh, that opportunity to be good enough, whether it takes what it takes to make an A in a class or get the promotion or pitch a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Somebody has to set the standard and say, this is what good enough means. Somebody's got to set that standard. With a lot of things being not good enough, those things don't have lifelong ramifications, do they? I mean, my life has not been crippled because I couldn't play college baseball, right? That hasn't ruined my life. Uh, because I was, a, I was a, maybe a B-minus average student in school, that hasn't really hurt me a whole lot uh, in life. Although, please don't talk to me about anything mathematic, all right? I just, I never, those, that was the really good, not good enough times in my life. But when it comes to having a relationship with Almighty God, and we've been singing about him this morning, when it comes to having that kind of relationship with, and listen, a God who is perfect. You want to set a high standard. The standard is God who is perfect, a God who says to us things like this. 
be holy because I am holy. Now, is that a standard for us? Would you agree with me when God says, be holy because I am holy? God says, here's the standard. You be holy like me, a God whose word says this. Romans chapter 3, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Whoa. What is he saying there? Here's the standard, and nobody reaches it. No, not one is what he says there. Romans 3.23, a little bit further in that chapter, Paul writes, for everyone has sinned. He explains why there's none who's reached the standard, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And I'm told that in the Greek language, the word that's written there in your New Testament that was written in Greek originally, the word for sin is a word that means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. And it, it, it was the idea of an archer shooting an arrow and off, off yonder is his target and he pulls his bow back and he lets the arrow fly and then the arrow does this. It never hits the target. It falls short every time. And the Bible says all of us and all of our attempts to be good enough miss the mark. We fall short of the target. So in God's eyes, according to God's standard of good enough, how many of us are? And the answer is, somebody tell me, none. None of us. Oh me. Oh my. Did he make us that way? Did God create us that way that we're not good enough? That would have been very nice, by the way, would it have been very nice of God? Because God's word then tells us that because of this failure in our lives, that we're not good enough, we're in trouble. In fact, we're in a lifetime of trouble, an eternity of trouble. In fact, it goes on in the book of Romans in chapter 6, verse 23, it tells us that the wages, the payment for this sinfulness in your life and mine is what? Death. What kind of God would create his creation, create them as failures, and then punish them to death because that's the way he made them? Have you ever said, when you failed at something, when you messed up with something, have you ever said, I can't help it, that's the way God made me? Now, don't raise your hand, but have you ever thought that? I can't help it, that's the way God made me. And I'm here to tell you that if that's the way God made you as a failure, then that wasn't a very nice God. God did not make us to be failures. He did not make us that way. Now, before you get too depressed about what I'm going to talk about this morning, let me say to you that there is good news, and I'll bring that out before we finish. But to understand who you really are, let's take a few minutes to consider what the Bible, which claims to be God's word, I believe the Bible's God's word, let's find out what it says about us. The psalmist asked the question, Here's the question. What is man? Asking God this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you're concerned with him? God, there you are, this great God over all the universe, and here we are, these little people on this planet. Why would you even be concerned about us? And for thousands of years, philosophers have asked such questions as that and others, such as, why is man here? And and where did we come from? And, and where are we going? And what is our purpose? It's really the question of the day because people really do want to know, do I have a purpose for living? Is there a reason for me being here on this earth? Why? 
Why do people want to know that? Because at the heart of the question is the question, well, who am I? And everybody wants to know that. We want to know who God made us to be. Now, so let me give you some things for your notes this morning. And I hope if you're in a group, you're going to take good notes because you're going to talk about some of these things this week. Number one, I'm not an accident. God created me on purpose. No one is an accident to God. Now, are there babies being born in hospitals and other places that people qual- or classify as accidental births? Accidental pregnancies? Are there? Of course there are. But nobody is an accident to God, not a single one of us. We might be accidents to our parents, but we're not accidents to God. He's the creator of life. And when you hear somebody say, you know, I shouldn't even be here. I'm an accident. I was unplanned. I'm a mistake. I was conceived because of a rape or whatever it might be. Please understand, with God, there are no accidents. Well, did God cause that crime? Did he cause that sinful act? No. But no one is created as an accident. And what they're really saying is this. I don't know that God really had a purpose in creating me. I really don't know that. Maybe they grew up being told that they were unwanted. But we can understand, and when we understand God and we realize that he loves every single human being born into this world, then we can realize, too, that we're not mistakes. And that's a huge reason why here at Nag Said Church that we believe life is sacred that life is created by God, that he loves every single person born on this planet, and that with conception comes the the basic right to live and to discover that purpose. But because we're Bible believers here at Nags Head Church, that means we hold to the Genesis account of creation. We believe the Genesis account of creation is how it happened, from nothing to everything by God's spoken word. We believe that the first man was named Adam and that God created him, as it says, from the dust of the earth. We believe that from one of Adam's ribs, God created the first woman who Adam named Eve. And in that story, in Genesis chapter, end of chapter two, in Jaw of Genesis chapter three, in that story in the Old Testament, we learn our own story. No accidents. Number two, God created me in his image. Who am I? I'm created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says very simply, so God created man in his own image. Now, when we say, and you've said this before, when we say that a child, that child is a spitting image of his daddy, you know, you look at some kids and you look at the dad or you look at the mom and you go, you got a clone there. You know what I mean? They just look exactly like their parents, uh, one of them anyway. We say that, spit an image of mom or dad, we're referring to physical resemblance, aren't we? Now, when that child acts up and misbehaves and mom looks at that child and says, you're just like your father, that's not physical resemblance she's talking about there. That's something different that we'll get into in a little bit. 
But not with God. It's not about physical resemblance. We don't look like physically. We don't look like God. And that's a real simple thing to figure out because you look at this room, and let's say there are 150 people in this room right now. If we all physically look like God, oh my goodness, does he change every day in his appearance? You know, how does that work? It's not talking about our physical resemblance, the image of God at all. Uh, Mainly because God has no physical body. Right? God is a spirit, Jesus said. Some might picture him as this old man. You, know, you see this in cartoons and different things. You picture this old man with this long flowing white beard, but that's just simply someone's unbiblical imagination going on there. Jesus told us that God, speaking of the Father, is a spirit and is invisible. Paul wrote about that in Colossians 1.15. Jesus spoke it in John 4.24. Jesus, you say, well, Jesus has a physical body, doesn't he? And the answer is yes. And the reason Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has a physical body is because he had to do what? He had to come to earth and die on a cross for us. So it had to be a physical body that Jesus assumed when he was born in Bethlehem. And we sang just a little bit about that tiny offering compared to a newborn king. The God of the universe became human. John 1.14 tells us that. For 33 years, Jesus' body was a normal human body like ours, but after his ascension, he crucified, resurrected, and then he ascended, read Acts chapter 1, back to the Father, back to his place in heaven. His body was transformed, we're told, into its glorified, perfect state, a state, now listen, Christian, a state that ours will be like at the resurrection. When we are transformed, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says, we will, when we see him, we will be like him. Talking about that transformation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50, and then through the end of the chapter, speaks of that same transformation that will happen at the resurrection. So then if image in his image doesn't mean physical resemblance, what does it mean that I am created in the image of, of God. Let me suggest several things. Number one, it might be that like God, we have intellect, we have morals, and we have the will to choose, and we have emotions. God has all of those, intellect, morals, the will to choose, and emotions. So that means that we as human beings are capable of reasoning, we're capable of thinking things through, we're capable of choosing right from wrong, we're capable of acting on choice, and unlike the animals, just on instinct, we don't have to do that. We act on choice, we can feel joy, we can feel sorrow, we can feel sadness and hurt and grief, all kinds of emotions. And the Bible tells us, as you read through the scriptures about God, God experiences all of those same emotions, reasoning. God says, come, let us reason together to us as humans. Let's think things through. He does all those things, and we do as well. So in his image may mean that. It also may mean that God is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. He's a triune God. And like God is a triune God, you and I are also made up of three, if I can say, parts. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. Or another way of saying those things, we, there's a physical me, there's a mental me, and there is a spiritual me. So God, like God is a trinity, 
has a triune. There's, there's three in one. You and I are three in one as well. And all three, body, soul, spirit, work together in you and me to make us who we are. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. A third meaning of being in God's image could be this. We are his representation on earth. And here's how, let me explain it this way. Here's a picture of me, uh, a graphic of me up on the screen. Now, and, and I, I like that picture. That's, that's me standing on the corner in Winslow, Arizona. I really was there. And there's a girl in a flatbed Ford <laughs> who, who came to a stop to take a look at me. But I want you to know, I did not turn around and look at her because taking the picture across the street was you-know-who. And uh, so I don't... Now, that's me. Rather stylish in the cowboy hat in Arizona, by the way. Wouldn't you agree? That's me. Is that me? No. This is me. That's an image of me on the screen. Do you understand the difference? That's not me. This is me. That's just kind of my representation on the screen that we have there. And if you'd like a copy, I'll make some and autograph them for you. <laughs> you and I, here, here's, the, here's the deal. Created in God's image may mean this. And I think it, this is a good idea about image of God. God created you and me to be his representation here on earth earth. We're created to represent God. Doesn't mean that we're God. Doesn't mean that we're God's. His representation. And when you and I put, here's how that works. When you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ and he becomes our savior. For me, that was when I was 10 years old. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and he becomes our savior, we become, we use the word all the time these days, we become Christians. You understand that? Do you know what the word Christian means? The word Christian means little Christs. Representations of Christ. Are we Christ? No, but Christ is in us. And as his children, as his followers, we are to represent him in this world. So whatever it means, and I think those are three great ideas about in his image, and I don't think any of them are wrong. I think they're all good. Whatever it means to be created in his image, we know that like God, we are eternal in our spirit. We are moral beings, and most of us have the intellectual capacity for rational thinking. I meant that to be funny. Most of us have the capacity for rational thinking. Uh, That is why it's wrong to think of man, of humankind, as being an animal. Because here's what separates us from the animal world. Mankind is the only creature of God who bears his image. We are different. His creation of man and woman in his image also tells us that we are created to be equal in our spiritual being. He didn't say, okay, some of you are in my image, but others of you are not. That's not how it works. He created, Adam and Eve were created equally in his image. And just as we've learned the Trinity is equal as God, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet the Son is submissive to the Father and the Spirit is submissive to the Son. While men and women, for example, are given different roles in the church, in the family, which is a picture of the church, all Christians, male and female, enjoy 
equal status before God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's no, none of us that we're not superior because we're one or the other. We're equal. Number three, God gave the earth to us to manage and enjoy. To manage and enjoy. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. And God said to them, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea. How many of you like to fish? All right. Rule the fish of the sea. Jump into my boat, I say. You know, it doesn't work that way. Rule the fish of the sea. Don't you wish it did? <laughs> Don't you wish, Bre Brendan, if we could say, ducks in the sky fall into my blind. It just doesn't work that way. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Uh, rule the creatures that crawl on the earth. I, I hate to tell you that I, I know some people whose dogs control their lives. You know what I'm talking about? I said, you got it backwards. It doesn't work that way. Rule the earth and the creatures on the earth. He told mankind, hey, Adam, Eve, and we as his descendants, you are in control of this home that he has given us. So he's placed us as managers of the earth. It's to be used, this planet. It's to be used, not abused, but it's not to be worshipped. Right? This idea of Mother Earth, no, 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 no. There's Father God. Earth is not my mother, and I don't worship Earth, but I am to use Earth and not abuse it. We haven't done a perfect job at that, by the way, have we? It's created for our sustenance, Earth is. It's created for our enjoyment. So you need to, Christian, you need to have a balanced approach, approach as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, when it comes to environmental issues, because there are some extremes that want us to treat the earth as though it is our God, and there are other extremes that just say, let's strip it naked and, and, and take everything away from it. We need to balance that and manage it well. The biblical mandate was for God to take dominion over the earth, subdue the earth, he said, rule over the earth, he said, meaning it's the earth is here, for us, not the other way around. At the same time, the role of dominion that God gives us mean, means that we have the responsibility to do what we can, and I think what we must, to protect this home of ours. Number four, about doctrine of, this doctrine of mankind. I'm not okay. I have a sinful nature. I'm not okay. I have a sinful nature. Romans 5, verse 12, when Adam sinned, way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin, what did it do? It brought death. And so death spread to everyone. Why? Because everyone sinned. We all have the disease. Because one person disobeyed, disobeyed God, many became sinners. Now, since we at Nagshead Church, we hold to the divine creation of the world and the divine creation of man, we also believe that Adam and Eve were literal people, not symbolic. And all of us, of every race, every ethnic background, are descended from these two people way back then, all of us. So we're all blood relatives, you know. We all have something similar in our biological makeup that can all be traced back to these two people, Adam and even from these common grandparents, we have all inherited something. 
And the thing that we have inherited is this. We resemble one another, not physically, but spiritually. We resemble one another in our nature. And the story is found in Genesis chapter 3. God placed this couple in this perfect environment called the Garden of Eden. And there was nothing in this garden that they needed that they did not have there for them. God said, hey, enjoy the garden. Everything you'll ever need in life is right here. Everything. But they were forbidden by God to eat or even touch the fruit from one particular tree. And God said, here's the deal. If you violate that, if you go against me on that, the penalty is that you will die. And so you know the story. Satan comes along, he takes the form of a snake, and he's able to speak, and he speaks to Eve, and he comes along, and he has this conversation with her, and he says, hey, did God say this? She said, well, yeah, yeah, God He said, no, he don't, don't believe it. He didn't come out and say God's a liar. He said, no, that's not really true. You're not going to die. God created you because he loves you. I mean, you're, the, you're the, the pinnacle of his creation. Don't think that at all. God doesn't want you eating from this tree because he said, Satan said, because here's why, it will make you like him. And he doesn't want any competition. That's why. And she couldn't resist. The fruit was beautiful. The devil, Satan, deceived her, and so she picked the fruit, she ate some of it, she gave it to her husband to eat as well. And immediately, the Bible says, their innocence was lost, and they were ashamed. And the sin that happened as a result of touching that fruit and eating that fruit became, for you and me, like a genetic disease, passed on to every single one of us. Look with me at verses, if you're in Genesis 3, verses 16 so 19, this, this happens after they've eaten the fruit and God is having a conversation with them. First, he talks to the, to the serpent, to the snake, and he said, hey, you know what? For the rest of existence, you're gonna crawl on your belly. Apparently, he had legs before that. You're gonna crawl on the belly in the dust. I'm gonna put a hostility, verse 15, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That's the first prophecy we have in the whole Bible about Jesus coming to die on the cross. I'm going to put enmity between, hostility between you, but he's going to strike your head. You'll strike his heel, but he's going to strike your head. And then verse 16, he said to the woman, now ladies, he's speaking to you here as well because this descends down to you. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. Apparently before the, um, the, the plan was that when women gave birth, apparently before sin, it was a piece of cake. All right? Yeah, you'll have that talk with Eve when you get there, ladies, all right? I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children in anguish and your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. There's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be difficulties in the marriage, in the home. I'm not going to ask you if you've experienced that, but let me just say probably you have. And he said to Adam, guys, listen up. Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree. Now, it doesn't say because you listened to your wife's voice, period. God's not saying don't listen to your wife's voice, gentlemen. 
Because I can tell you right now, listening to my wife's voice has spared me a whole lot of heartache in my life, right? She's a wise person. But he says, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Here's what results. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. And for those of us who live here on the Outer Banks, sand spurs, it will produce those things for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Never, they never had to work for anything up to this point. It was all there. Now you're going to have to work and earn things, hard labor by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, until you die. Since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to the dust. When Grandpa Adam sinned, Grandma Adam sinned, they messed everything up. The ground became cursed so that it would not yield good things, and you can thank Adam for all those things. Women's roles of being equal but submissive was distorted to her becoming subjected to men and resenting it. And child, by the way, you can see this na- nature problem. You could see it right after the inauguration and all that with that march in D.C. and the things that were being said and the vile, evil things that were being promoted at that. What is that? That's the result of Genesis chapter 3. Childbearing became painful. No longer was everything provided for man by God. The fall resulted and man having to work hard to produce a living. And even more dreadful was the corrupt, sinful, fallen nature that Adam received when he sinned. And his sin resulted in physical and spiritual death. And as our ancestor, he passed this sinful nature to all of us. But the sin nature we inherited did something even worse than require us to live on a planet populated now by vermin and disease. It more worse than that, it, it severed our relationship, our fellowship with God, and canceled the eternal life that Adam was given at creation. You, you know, before the sin, you read in Genesis, and Adam walked with God and talked with God in the garden. But after the sin, Adam tried to hide from God. Why? Something was broken between him and God. God stopped being his friend and became his judge. And the broken fellowship caused by Adam's sin brought both physical and spiritual death, which has been passed on to all of us. We all understand that everybody in this room, one day, unless Christ comes first, everybody, 100% of us, are going to die. And that was because of what Adam did. Before Adam committed this sin, you know, He would still be alive today if he had not sinned. Think about that one. Number five, I'm a sinner because I choose to be. I'm a sinner because I choose to be. Let's let's read this verse together. It's from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible because it helps me so understand myself. Look what Paul says. Read it with me. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Have you ever been there and done that? Can you, can you say, you know what, Paul? I know exactly what you're talking about. I want to do the right thing, but somehow that's not what happens. 
and I hate it when I do the wrong thing. Do you ever wonder why you choose to do dumb things, wrong things? And the answer is it's because sin comes naturally to us. What do you mean? How many of you parents had to teach your little child to tell you a lie? How many of you had to say, now here's how you lie, and one of these days I want you to come up and tell me a big fat one. <laughs> you don't do that. They learn, how do they learn to lie? It's something they do naturally. Well, where does that come from? It comes from that sinful nature, but it's a choice that we make to sin, to lie. God created us as free moral agents, meaning he gave us the choice to do right or to do wrong. And some choose wrong more often, and some choose more awful things than I've ever chosen. You know, I, I, I always love it when people want to argue this point, say, well, I'm not as bad as, as that guy in Korea, or I'm not as bad as, as, as Hitler. I'm not as bad as some chainsaw murderer. You know, I'm not as bad as those people. Well, our comparison, again, the standard is who? Be holy, God said, because I'm holy. So those people are not my standard. So it does no good to compare myself with another person. But every single one of us have made choices to do what breaks God's law. And that means I'm individually responsible. All of us are for our perfections. I can't blame anyone but me for the choices I make. Therefore, God won't judge anybody but me for the sins I commit. Not my parents, not my spouse, not my friends. There's no passing this buck. And on our own, hear me, we can never be good enough because we are broken. Now, isn't this whole thing depressing? Aren't you saying, you know, I got up and I came out in this nasty weather and, and I had to try not to run over marathon runners, and I did all that to get here, and I get here to church hoping to be lifted up and inspired, and dadgummit, Rick, you got me depressed. I'm broken. And you might be a guest here thinking, you know, I, I really didn't expect to hear this this morning when I came to church, but let me say there is something encouraging, greatly encouraging, because there is good news. Number six, I am the object of God's love. Despite all of that that we've just covered, God loves me, and he loves you. The amazing thing is throughout all this history of mankind for these thousands and thousands of years since Adam and Eve, throughout all the horrible things that mankind has done, including you and me, God has never given up on us. Despite our rebellion, he doesn't hate us. What does God hate? He hates sin. Because he's righteous, there had to be justice for breaking his law. He doesn't let things slide. He doesn't sweep things under the carpet. He doesn't look down at us, Jack, and say, well, boys will be boys. You know, they're just, it's, you know he's not like that, that old grandpa that lets his kids, grandkids do whatever they want. You know, he's not that kind of God. But he's also, this God of the Bible, is a God of mercy as well. And his love drove him to make a way to bridge the gap between you and me. His love did that. And while I'm sure he loves all of his creation to some degree, all of his creation, I'm sure he loves all of his creation to some degree, hear me, we who are created in his image, we who are the ones that Christ died for, he loves us supremely. He loves mankind more than he loves anything else on this planet. 
You and I are the crown of his creation, and he's proven that. And because love, the word love is a verb, meaning it's an action word. It requires action. God says, I love, and you say, show me, prove it. How? God acted in this most incredible way to keep us from eternal death. You know this verse, I bet, John 3, 16. Jesus said, for God loved the world in this way. Here's how he showed it. Here's how he proved it. Here's the act, action that he took. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Paul comes back in the book of Romans in chapter 5, verse 8, and he said this. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please get that. He did not say, I'm going to wait until you stop sinning. He did not say, I'm going to wait till you say, I'm not going to sin anymore. Why? Because we're broken. We can't make that choice. We can't stop that on our own. When that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. The great words of Jesus on the cross, remember, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're still sinning, but God says, I'm willing to forgive you, and I'm showing you that by allowing my son to die for you. And through that love, we're going to talk more about this next Sunday. Through that love, he provided a way for us to be, hear me now, recreated into his image. To be reconciled. To be transformed into his image. Would you pray with me? God's proven his love to us, even though we did not and do not deserve it. Uh, That's what grace is all about. He's proven his mercy to us not giving us what we deserve. In fact, he gave it to his son, Jesus, when he allowed him to die on the cross and make make payment for my sin, for yours. God has, if I can say it this way, I realize he does not have a physical body, but to help me understand it, God has bent over backwards to bring us back as his children, to bring us back into the image that he created us to be. And if you'd like, you may say, well, I've never heard this before. I've been wondering what my purpose is. Your purpose is to know God. Your purpose is to be recreated in Jesus Christ. Your purpose is to live a life that brings God glory. And if you might say, you know, I, I don't know that. I've never known that before. How do I get in on that? The answer will, and we'll spend time with it next Sunday, but you may not be here next Sunday. So the answer is by simple faith, you put your trust in him and him alone. You do what Jesus said there in John three sixteen. You believe in the only begotten son of God and God takes that belief and he gives you new life. He changes you from the inside out. If you'd like to find out more about that, when we conclude here this morning, a couple of our pastors will be standing up front. Please come up and speak to them and say, how can I know more about this? God, take your word, your truth, and ingrain it into our hearts so that we understand who we are. Because when we understand who we are, that helps us a whole lot understand what an amazing God you are. Helps us understand when we sing that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound.
In Christ's name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world. 